Hello, I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. Thanks for tuning in to the Goop Podcast. When it comes to skincare, I am big on exfoliating a lot. I don't really wear makeup when I'm going to the office during the week, but I always wear moisturizer or face oil. And the other thing I do every single morning is drink Goop Glow. Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. So in other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. I love it. We designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. You've probably heard of most of them, like vitamin C and vitamin E, CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. Altogether, these antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress. Topical skincare is great, but I personally don't think it's enough, which is why I like adding Goop Glow to my routine. The powder comes in cute little single dose packets. I subscribe to our 30 packs of Goop Glow, so I get my new box every month. And if I'm not drinking it at home, I'll throw a packet in my gym bag on the way to work out, or I'll bring a bunch of Goop Glow in my carry-on when I'm traveling for sure. If you want to try it out yourself, and I highly recommend you do, order one box of Goop Glow today and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow at checkout. That's goop.com slash goopglowpodcast and use promo code goopglow to get your second box on us. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear about that? (laughs) I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today, I'm sharing one of my favorite conversations from our wellness summit in Goop Health. It's with BJ Miller, the author of A Beginner's Guide to the End. BJ joined me on stage with his dog, Maisie. BJ is a doctor who specializes in hospice and palliative care. He has his own incredible personal story, which I'll let him tell you about. And he has so many wise insights about what it means to live a good life and die a good death. I love getting to talk to him about regret and ego and connection. I'm way more interested in the things that you can't control. That lights me up. That kind of puts us humans in, that gets us creative, but it also kind of puts us in our place, Mm. keeps us in proportion to the world. Let's get to my conversation with BJ. Hi, good morning. 
Good morning. It's so great to have you here. Thanks for having us. <laughs> this is Maisie, by the way. Good old Maisie. <laughs> hey, baby girl. Okay. So I know this is territory that's a bit well-worn, but mm. I think part of the fascinating aspect of your concentration as a doctor really comes from, or it seems from the outside, it stemmed from the accident you had while you were at Princeton, mm. which put you on a different trajectory. Is that right? Totally. So will you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah. It's coming up on the 30-year anniversary. It's November 27th. It's just after Thanksgiving holiday. We had just come back to school. And we were just out having a, like a basic time. It wasn't a crazy wild night, but we were, a couple of my friends and I, we were walking to get a sandwich at the Wawa Market, which is sort of like a 7-Eleven-y kind of late night deli place. And there's a commuter train that sits right on campus. It was just parked, it was just sitting there, and we just climbed it like you'd climb a tree. But the wires run overhead. The, tree was, uh, the train wasn't moving, it, but the wires were electrified, and I had a metal watch on. And so when I stood up, I got close enough to the power line, and it arced to the watch. And that, that was it. So lost both legs below the elbow and one le arm below the uh, I'm sorry, both, <laughs> both <laughs> legs, yes, much far below the elbow. <laughs> both legs below the knee and this arm below the elbow. Where are you going, girl? <laughs> oh. Maybe I was, sen she was sensing I was vulnerable. <laughs> Down you go, baby. And at the time, you, you go. did you Come know on. that you wanted to go into medicine? No, no, medicine. Down you go, sweetie. She wants on this couch is what she's Come on. here. Come on. Down you go. You want to come up here? Yeah, there she goes. There she goes. Oh, Gwyneth, I really like you a lot. <laughs> come here, mates. Come here. Down you go, baby. There she goes. <laughs> so, sorry. So anyway, yes. So all that experience being a patient is what turned me on to medicine. I had not had any interest in medical in medicine at all before that. I wasn't pre-med or all that stuff. I went back and did the pre-meds after college. And was there a particular moment or person or realization you had when you were getting well that triggered this career path? Yeah. I mean, I know there wasn't a, a thing or a moment. So I went back to college and I and there's something about while I was in the hospital, there was something that was lighting up from I was heading for East Asian studies. But there was something about the experience of being a patient, losing limbs, trying to kind of refashion myself in some way, that art lit up as the thing for me to study. It seemed more relevant, weird, not weirdly, it just sounded more relevant, that this was a, a creative act, that I was going to put myself back together, and that felt like a creative thing to do. So was, studying art kind of got me into it, it like allowed me to play with this rather than sort of run away from it or be embarrassed by it. There was a funny moment actually in one of my first lectures, just sitting there and we were looking at old, old Greek statues and, and you just noticing you know, like a lot of old statues, they're missing parts, you know, they're just from the years, like an, an arms lopped off or whatever else. And here we are looking at these beautiful objects and admiring them and reading so many things into them. And no one was sitting there talking about, wouldn't that sculpture be great if it, if it had both of its legs or whatever <laughs> else? And it felt strangely really relevant to me. Mm -hmm. And then there was this time and well, I'll, I'd go on too long about that. But the bottom line is there was, there was this sort of this feeling like I was learning something that felt very important for me mm -hmm. and that also felt very universal. And I couldn't help but think if I had a doctor who looked 
something like me, how different my experience could have been. In other words, someone who just shared their experience of being in the bed, and it felt like so much to leverage and so much to work through rather than overcome. Right. And I was curious when I was reading about you, if at that point you had to, in some way, dismantle your ego in order to re-envision yourself as, mm-hmm. you know, a different than how you imagined you would be in your life. And if that was the first step in mm-hmm. this work around separating ego. Yeah, it was a huge piece of it. There was so much of the, it was, you're right on. It was like a dismantling. Mm-hmm. Like my sense of self was dismantled. My body was dismantled. It was sort of take you down to the studs. And I certainly, you know, would never have chosen that. But like so many things that you can't choose, there's a lot of power in it. If it's bigger than you, it's a Mm -hmm. force bigger than you. And it makes you, you have to reorient to it. Mm -hmm. If I had had a choice, this would have been a very different experience. And I would have not learned nearly so much. But the fact that it was just a brutal fact helped me get over it and helped me work with it and helped me kind of see life as raw material again, mm-hmm. and that I can rebuild, and I can have a different sense of myself in the world in a way, I don't know this is the wrong word, but a better sense of mm-hmm. myself in the world. Less afraid because I had fallen and realized that falling wasn't so bad, and less afraid because I knew that there wasn't unlimited time in this world, and less afraid because I had come to, this is huge, I'd come to realize how much we need each other, becoming dependent as a young man, fully dependent for everything from nurses and friends for a while. Super humbling, but it really makes it very, very clear that autonomy and independence aren't real. Like, there's no such thing as living in a vacuum. We, we right. really need each other. And that was a very beautiful, hard-earned lesson. So did you... It's interesting that you learn these lessons so young and you were able to take them with you into medical school. How do you think that shaped the way that you viewed medicine in comparison to some of your classmates? Yeah, I feel, I feel like such a, I feel bad for some of my classmates, especially the young docs who look super young and they're meant to sit or be with people through these very hard times and impart wisdom, but they look 12. <laughs> I feel like, honestly, it's no joke. I don't mean to be Pollyannish. I really feel like this was an advantage. I mean, I think the smart thing mm-hmm. was choosing a profession where this was relevant and even an advantage. So it wasn't something I could regret. And yeah, because a patient will take one look at my body and know, okay, you've been through something. You've been in the hospital bed. There's not so much distance between doctor up here and patient down here. Mm -hmm. It puts us side by side much, much more quickly. And so how did you choose to go into palliative care? Nice word with the nice Thank job you. with the word. I'm really trying, guys. I can't say it three times it's, in a row. But. It's a terrible word. I just really we make it pretty challenging. But well, I was I went into medicine thinking that I could use these experiences from sort of disability rights movement and advocacy, seeing disability as a civil right that I wasn't less of a person because I had less body parts, fewer body parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, really. I knew that in my bones, and that was thanks to my mom and others in the sort of movement of disability rights. So I knew this was something to work with, not overcome and apologize for. So in medicine, I thought I'd go into rehab medicine, work with other folks who had just become disabled or gone through some trauma. 
But I fell out of love with that for a couple of reasons and then sort of stumbled on, on palliative care as an elective. And it lit up, you know, like immediately, like that day. It was like, this is exactly what I was interested in. And I, I think it was because, uh, you know, a lot of medicine's about preventing suffering or fixing you. I'm, I'm just much more interested in things that can't be fixed. I'm way more interested in the things that you can't control. That lights me up. That kind of puts us humans in, that gets us creative, but it also kind of puts us in our place, mm. keeps us in proportion to the world. So anyway, here's this field that is all about dealing with things that you can't change, that you just have to work with, whether it's chronic illness or, or mortality. And that was thrilling. I love that it wasn't pure hard medical science because I'm not a pure hard medical scientist. I love that the subject matter is totally universal, like everyone in the world suffers, everyone in the world dies, that, and to get, for that to be my, the, the subject I get to work on, mm. you know, that just means you're endlessly relevant. So all of those things I loved about it, and then lastly, I suppose it was the fact that it was underdeveloped. You know, mm. the world needs more palliative care, and so it was fun to join a, something of a movement that way. Yeah. I mean, seems that culturally we don't have a way of dealing with death except to fear it and resist it. Mm -hmm. So first of all, just on a more pragmatic level, what is your approach when you are having that first conversation with somebody who knows that death is more concrete? Because I think for all of us now, if we're healthy, God willing, it's something that's abstracted. Like, we yeah. all know we're going to die, but I don't think we yeah. really think about it that much. Yeah. And I imagine that when somebody understands that this is imminent or mm -hmm. much more finite, there's a, a big shift. So yeah. how do you begin the process? Because I know it's, you're not one and done with people, right? You, right. Make, right. This is a, you go through the journey with them. You know, you, you're, you point out something really important for everyone to understand. This is not like a transaction. You don't, it's not like the rest of medicine where you can kind of go and get a procedure and be something done with it. It is totally, it's a relationship and it has to happen over time. And sometimes you meet patients who are at the very end with hours or days to go and there's, that's a, sort of one approach. But usually I'll meet folks who are upstream a fair bit mm -hmm. and they may feel relatively well, but they've recently been introduced to the thing that one day will kill them. It may be years, mm -hmm. but to your point, this abstraction that we all, okay, yeah, we die, becomes realer, mm -hmm. you know? It, and there's a process of it getting realer and realer and realer all the way to the end. And so you have to kind of stick with people over time. And I guess the, the major answer to your question, Gwyneth, is you don't talk, you don't go right to it. I mean, most of the first visit, unless someone's really an extremist and in agony or something like that, then, then I'm pulling out the prescription pad and working with medications and really mm -hmm. talking folks through a traumatic moment. But otherwise, you're really just trying to get to know each other. So the first visit, we may just talk about their family or sports mm -hmm. or anything that they love in life. Because if you can get into the what I love about life, then you can get to what I'm afraid to lose, and that's where all the action mm -hmm. is. So... It, that's how it starts. Okay. And is there, in the course of these conversations, do you act a, as a, a therapist in the way that you start to identify where those misgivings, misunderstandings, unspoken traumas are that mm. you know inevitably, if they're working with you and have the good fortune to have that sort of 
context of care mm -hmm. that will start to emerge as they get closer to death? Yeah. It's amazing what, yes. I mean, it's amazing what happens. Maybe all of us know this. When you feel safe, you know, you start revealing yourself. Mm. And so really so much of the job is making a safe little zone. Part of that's a physical thing, but a lot of it is a sort of an attitude. Like, I'm not going to judge you. Whatever got you here, I'm just going to see you. I'm not going to say good or bad. Whatever it is, it just is. And maybe you know that feeling of someone who's looking, not strategically, not to find a way to affect you, but just is just seeing you for anything you are. Like once you're in that zone, then guards go down, trust builds, and then one way or another, people start revealing themselves. Mm -hmm. So it may be explicit where they'll say, gosh, this pain reminds me of a time when I was a kid and this and that happened and I've never gotten over it. I mean, sometimes it's that explicit, but very often you'll just pick up, just by being a sort of attentive human being, you'll pick up body language. You might broach a subject and watch their eyes die, dart off, or you might try to broach the subject of you know, preparing for the end or how their kids are going to do, do with life out without them or when subjects get harder and you can watch how they bounce off the subject. They may have it in them for a minute to talk about it, but then need to change the subject. Mm -hmm. And so as long as you have time, you're sitting there reading in real time, seeing how much can be taken now and how much needs to wait. And that's so much of the job is that sort of in judgment and intuition of how much can someone take? Because in medicine... It's not uncommon that a lot of us would not even know that our diagnosis is terminal. A lot of people are walking around with, with terminal diagnoses that don't know that somehow. And you may say, oh, those darn doctors don't tell the truth. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes we smear it or we blur the edges and make it a little vaguer than it needs to be. We're, we're afraid to take away hope or afraid to dash someone's feelings. It's not such a, a simple matter as just did I, the doctor, convey the truth? Mm -hmm. First of all, we're not very good at prognosticating. We don't always know what the truth is. But the bigger question is, what if, if the truth is meant to serve you, patient and family, it needs to be received in a way. And sometimes we can bludgeon each other with truth in mm -hmm. the name of I'm gonna, uh, breaking through denial. The truth is denial is a very powerful and important force and needs to be used thoughtfully and needs to be dismantled thoughtfully. So all that is to say, it's not as simple as thing as just delivering the news. You have to meet it out in a certain way that it can be received. My job is not to tell you something. My job is to help you receive something. Do you believe that these diagnoses, especially if they're coming earlier in our lives than mm. we would want, can serve an important spiritual purpose? To totally. Oh, yeah. That How many can... times have you seen, like, with specific patients that come in hardened to these ideas and then are able to soften? Most of the time. You know, if you have enough time with someone, because Mother Nature is going to take care of it, well, you will be broken down. You know, you are going to, your ego and your body, it's going to be, it's not a matter of if, it's when. Mm -hmm. So if you can hang in there with the patient, if you have enough time, you don't need to engineer that coming apart. It will happen and, you're, and you, you just get to be there for when it does. And your job really is to inculcate trust in advance of that moment. But one way or another, whether you choose to lean into your vulnerabilities 
or you're just overwhelmed by forces of nature larger than yourself, we, you'll get there, you know. We'll get back to today's chat in a minute. So clearly I'm biased, but the Goop podcast is one of the most rewarding projects that I've ever worked on at Goop, or really anywhere. I love the conversations I get to have here with so many incredible thought leaders. Pretty much ever since we launched the Goop podcast, we've been dreaming up other podcast series that we'd want to listen to and share with you guys. Our first series to follow the Goop podcast is called Goop Fellas. It's hosted by, yes, you guessed it, two men. Will Cole is a functional medicine practitioner, and Seamus Mullen is a chef. They've both become good friends of mine and part of the Goop family. You might have heard them both on this podcast before. Like me, and many of you, I'm sure, Will and Seamus are really interested in what drives people to change, to heal, to reinvent themselves, to reclaim their health, or bounce back from a heartbreak. Seamus himself almost died from rheumatoid arthritis, and Will's day job is helping people uncover and overturn the roots of disease. In other words, they are intimately familiar with unlikely personal transformations. On Goop Fellas, Will and Seamus sit down with people who have incredible stories about confronting life challenges. It's our hope that these conversations will appeal to men, because I don't think there is enough space in our culture for men to be vulnerable. But this is also a series for women, and for that matter, for anyone who is looking to bring about change in their life, big or small. You can listen to Goop Fellas on your favorite podcast platforms. We've just launched the first season, and we'll be dropping new episodes on Wednesdays. Subscribe to keep up. And to learn more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. I hope you love Will, Seamus, and this series as much as I do. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Is letting go of ego... Is there a correlation between letting go of ego and fear of death? I think so. I mean, I'll just speak from my, what I've seen in my own experience. Yeah, there is, there's proof of immortality all over the place. You just have to see beyond yourself, you know? Like if, 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 if this thing is that we want to live forever, which most of us actually don't. Um, I would actually no. take a question. If you could hit, hit a button and live forever, would you push the button? I love this question. There's no, I think the, the, most of us, we absorb this idea that death is all bad and, Mm -hmm. and it's so, and it is hard. I do not want to be Pollyannish. Let's be clear. It is very difficult stuff. And at some point it's even a relief. And when you watch folks over time, letting go of their ego, or maybe not even letting go of their ego, sort of blowing up and seeing themselves in everything. And you see that proof of yourself in everything. And so this body's going to go, but my effect on the world, there, you know, that, the energy that that's, I've consumed for a while will go back in the world. That's a, that's not a, I don't see that as a spiritual belief. There's, that's just a fact. You can empirically watch this play out. So to, to your point, Gwyneth, absolutely. Once you either let go of your ego or have such an expansive sense of, of your relationship between self and other, One way, if you get beyond the confines of this body, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of relief waiting for you. Mm -hmm. It's not so sad that this body is going to go. Life will go on. Mm -hmm. This is the real misnomer when we talk about the end of life. It's it's just the end of this life. And so how, one thing that I really wanted to understand from your point of view is regret. Mm. 
and how people mm. cope with regret when they're dying. You, you just said, you know, we're all contributing something to this world. And for those of us or ourselves or maybe our parents or people we know who feel that they have contributed to trauma or negativity, mm. how do you help people address that? And can we make those energetic repairs? Yeah, that's a really <clears throat> great question. I mean, that's where so much of it comes down to. Uh, I see a lot, of, a lot of the sorrow at the end of life is, is, is this confrontation with regret. I mean, the first thing that I think get across is regret, like all of this stuff, is first of all, let's like de-shame it. It's just normal. As a sentient, conscious human being, you have to make choices. And when you go this way, you can't go that way. And sometimes it would have been better to go that way. And, you know, there's just, regret is just part of the deal. So part of the work really is sort of taking the stigma off it, just like so much of this, taking the stigma off of being sick, taking the stigma off of disability, whatever. And then you can settle into it a little different. So that's point the first. Regret is normal. You don't have to feel bad for feeling bad. You don't have to feel bad for having regrets. Mm -hmm. And the, this is one of the great impulses for, I'm so grateful for this conversation with you, is to get us thinking about death earlier in life. Mm -hmm. So it's not a surprise at the end when, 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 to, to learn that we die. In part because so we can prepare ourselves, yeah. But so much of it is because so we can gain these beautiful lessons in life that time is precious, that mistakes will happen, that ultimately you really can't fail. You're going to die either way. And it's to get that sort of sense of perspective earlier in life so that you can appreciate what you have while you have it. And appreciating what you have while you have it is probably the thing that will inoculate you against more regrets, mm -hmm. against piling it on. So one thing is to sort of, it's almost like harm reduction, reduce regret. But the regrets that are real, when you finally sit and dare to look at them, very often it's not so hard. It may be a, I need to call you up and say, you know, Gwyneth, I'm so sorry about the dog on the couch. I feel horrible about it, or whatever it is. Like, just a simple sorry, a simple, it goes so far. Mm -hmm. Just acknowledging what happened, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, things are repairable. Sometimes it's a simple, I love you. Sometimes it's a simple, thank you. You know, the... One of the things I love about this subject, too, is it, it gets us back to the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. And the fundamentals really hold. Mm -hmm. I think for so many of us, we, if we're holding shame around something or holding a regret, we don't necessarily, it's not that comfortable to, you know, when we're healthy and we're busy and we're doing our thing, mm. to kind of pick up the phone. and. Yeah. But would you encourage that like I mm. you know it's like if we sit here it's such a gift to think about gosh this is an opportunity to sort of take an inventory of your life and think about the things that you're still holding on to like I've had probably mm. six or seven things come up for me myself mm. while I'm sitting here mm. and then when I think about going to repair them I feel like heaps of shame coming on even thinking mm -hmm. about having to confront it. What are some of the ways we can identify what those things are and what are some mm. tools that we can use? Well, you just named one. I mean, shame, guilt, that sort of, when you catch yourself defending, mm -hmm. that's a little sign. Say, hey, there must be something here. So you can dog ear it for later and hope to get it, get to it. Or you can deal with it now. There are only so many hours in the day. But I think I 
first point would be note when you're getting defensive, and that should be a sign that you're, you're, you're covering up something, and that deserves some attention. And maybe there's not enough time to get to all these regrets. Maybe there's not enough time to even acknowledge them in yourself. And that, that points us to the sort of the next layer in all this, which is another muscle for us all to get better at, which you guys, I mean, I know is front and center for you. I mean, it's just compassion. Mm -hmm. Just being kind, not just to others, but to yourself. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you are going to fail. You are going to regret. That's normal. So, you, yeah, you learn a lesson where you can, but at the very end of the day, my, at the, probably my favorite human capacity is forgiveness. You know, if you can just say, hey, I'm, I did what I could. I'm sorry I couldn't get to the rest. It's also an acknowledgement that I'm just one person. Um, it puts me in proportion. I'm just, there's only so much I can do. There's only so many hours. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, after all that trying, there's still gonna be all sorts of things that we need to forgive in ourselves. And that's, I, for me anyway, one of the sort of final layers to this is get really good at forgiveness. Especially to yourself. Including and especially to yourself. Yeah, is, that, yes. Is that something, a trait that you see exhibited in people who are dying a more peaceful death? Yeah. Self-forgiveness? Yes, yes. Less clinging, less clutching by the fingernails, less sense of unfinished business, mm -hmm. more reconciliation, more humor, you know? Yeah, absolutely. This is sort of what you'll see. If your goal is a, if your goal is a peaceful death, let's be clear, not everyone has that goal. Some people want to go down swinging. Some people want to be in the ICU with all the chemo hanging and whatever it may be. So. Uh, I just want to be clear, that's okay too. Mm -hmm. Each their own on this stuff. It's far be it for me to judge how you're dying. But with that little caveat, yes. But you can observe that one seems more whole. Yes, yes. But that's it. That's exactly, it's like feeling whole. It's sort of like, it's self-referential. It's consonant. If my identity is BJ the fighter, mm -hmm. then for me to feel whole, I got to be fighting something. Mm -hmm. For me to be whole, ICU may be the right place for me. Right. If I see myself as someone who enjoys peace and whatever, pick your word, let's just stick with peace. Well, then I see you probably wouldn't be the place for me to choose. And then, you know, maybe home is the way for me to be and sort of. So anyway, I guess I don't want to call out. There's, there's no such thing as a good death in any objective terms as far as I can tell. Good death may simply be just being yourself, playing yourself all the way out, whatever it is you are. And. You don't necessarily, enlightenment and other things may or may not come. But if you play yourself out, all your last little cells, however you are, whoever you are, to me, that's about as good as it gets. And that doesn't have to look any one way. Do you believe in reincarnation? You know, I believe in the, I believe sort of energetically, I believe I'm agnostic. Mm -hmm. I have come, I was raised Episcopalian. And there's much I actually took from, uh, from my earlier life going to church, basically love and forgiveness and the golden rule, which I cling to. Mm -hmm. But no, I've become much more agnostic, like devoutly agnostic. I love, I, I have come to love the sensation of not knowing. I've mm -hmm. come to love the idea that, that there's all sorts of things I can't explain. That keeps me curious, that keeps me humble, that keeps me interested, and it keeps me open. So for me, it's, it's not, 
It's not agnosticism because I just can't find any other proof. Like it's, a, it's not a consolation. It is, it's a very powerful place for me to hang out, especially in the work I do because I don't, I don't project a faith with my patients, nor do I deny a faith if they need that. I don't know if I answered your question, but yeah. yeah. What are your, the age of your youngest patients? Well, in the medical world, the pediatrics and adult medicine is pretty well separated. In right. palliative care, there is, a pedi- there is pediatric palliative care. But once in a while, you'll find a, a young adult. I suppose the youngest patient I've ever had would be maybe 20. Mm-hmm. When I was a trainee, I, was, I did some work in pediatric hospice. So I have, been, I have worked with kids a little bit, mm-hmm. but not, not so much. Mostly young adults and older folks. I was just curious about that because I think, you know, you, children don't seem to have the idea of control the way that adults have it. Mm -hmm. So what does somebody who's predisposed to having a lot of control in their lives, Mm -hmm. what does that look like when dealing with death? Mm. In some ways, those guys have it harder. Oh, brother. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. I mean, (laughs) in some way, you know, if you're used to being able to exercise yourself in the world in such a way that what you want is what happens... That's awesome in some ways. Sounds great. But it doesn't necessarily prepare you for this great, this absolutely great loss of control that's coming your way. Mm-hmm. So if you think about loss and grief and letting go of control, those, these are things you can exercise over the course of a life. And some of us are so lucky as to get our way through life. There's, there's a zero sum to this. All that sort of deferred pain kind of comes in a, with a big club at the end. You have to reconcile <laughs> yourself some one way or another that you are one person. You can only do so much. There are things that are going to be outside of your control. And the longer you forestall that basic lesson, the harder in some ways it is. Not always. I mean, some folks, like for me, when I had my injuries, it was spontaneous, it was sudden, it was immediate, it was obvious. Mm-hmm. And there was no... I couldn't, there was no resistance, resistance was so incredibly futile, so Mm -hmm. there was no, there was no choosing anything, and so you can, you can get smart real fast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was curious if your studies around Asian cultures informed at all, it just made me think, how do other cultures talk about death or what is their framework for death? I imagine you've done a lot of research mm. in other areas, I mean, this other is my, countries. Sorry to interrupt you. No, not um, at all. This is where I think any of, uh, anyone interested in going to palliative care, come, come join the fold. I mean, one of the ways this field reveals itself as a young field is that we haven't, the way any, any of us experience our lives has so much to do with culture, how we're brought up our vernacular, et cetera, our traditions. It's a huge piece of how we experience life and death. Mm. And in the field, it's the least well-developed. We're still working mostly from physiology more than culture. Mm -hmm. So there's so much room to explore this. I'll just say from my just sort of casual, what I'm picking up and what I see in the world, and by virtue of working in a, living in the Bay Area with with a very diverse patient population, you know, I think the big difference is Older cultures who have been around the block one way or another, east or west, there's just so much, there's such a huge burden of proof 
that we die, that it's not optional, that it's coming, you know. There's, and there's so much history of memorialization, old structures that, were, that you can look at and realize that were built by people who no longer, just proof, uh, proof of impermanence all over the place. Those cultures seem to have roped death into their, into their worldview versus the American thing where we're still, we're still pursuing ideals like independence, Again, doesn't really exist. Immortality in this, of this body so far doesn't exist. You know, we keep thinking we're going to invent our way through every problem, and American ingenuity is what we're going to get us through. And it's gotten us very far. It's just not going to get us all the way to what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And so we have this very immature relationship to death, which basically is, in a nutshell, that it's somehow opposed to life, mm -hmm. that, that it's, it's a foreign invader, that's coming to get us versus this thing that's in our bones that's as natural as the hills. That's, so I guess I'm, what I'm getting to at is some older cultures that I have seen and where there is less stress around death, it's simply because the way they see the world now for generations includes death. It hasn't excluded this one big fact like we keep trying to do here. What do you think that has to, our resistance in America towards death stems from? Is it capitalism? Is it? I think there's a political answer to this, there's an economic answer to this, there's a historical answer to this. In this new America of the last 270 years, there was this frontier spirit. You were very actively pushing against nature. <clears throat> nature was this thing that you come to colonize a, a wild landscape. You are nature, you are pitted against nature. You know, you are pushing, pushing against nature. It's, it's our, we all inherited this from our literature class in high school, man versus nature. You know, like that's the, the great Western literary tradition. Aren't we part of nature? I know it seems obvious, but then again, it isn't. So I think there's part of this sort of frontier thing. I, part, I think our identity as, in, as, a, as a hotbed of invention, of technology, and what is technology but finding a way to sort of outdo mother nature. And we're, we've gotten very good at it in a lot of ways. Yeah. There's a reckoning, I think, we're in the midst of something of a reckoning with that, but that sort of cultural identity is we are the ones who find our, fight our way, we invent our way through, all that kind of stuff plays into this. I think the, you bring up capitalism, I think that's a very interesting, I, that's a very interesting point. And capitalism is fueled by this idea that we can have, as Greta Thunberg so beautifully pointed out, that we can have this folly of endless growth. That's a design flaw in our, in our view of capitalism. And there again, a reckoning is coming and you can feel it. But all these sort of incomplete systems that haven't fully wrapped in full views of reality into their design, mm. are all over America. And so pick your, pick your, your politics, pick your, all, any of it this winner versus loser versus seeing that we all have everything, how much we have in common. This winning is so temporary that you're gonna lose eventually. So we can maybe quit going to wars that we know we'll lose. Yeah, this is a very American thing. It's a very Western thing. And I guess my hope is thanks to conversations like this, that maybe we'll all grow up quickly enough to kind of get ourselves back on track in time before we really, really screw everything up. Yeah. Sorry, that sounded really bleak, but I, I just feel like oh. we're, I mean, I don't think this is very, I, we are on an unsustainable path. Mm -hmm. Pick your angle on that one. So what are the things that we can, 
do every day to prepare ourselves for death? Okay, a couple of things. Like one is, I mean, like just the little nitty gritty stuff. I mean, do your advanced directive. Everyone knows they're really important. No, no one does them. Name your healthcare proxy. Put your assets in a trust, okay? These kinds of things. Very, we know we need to do them. We keep deferring them. Do that. Okay, but besides those sort of... Administrative. Yes. Which are super important. Important. Boring. I just did all that important. stuff, by did the way. Did you? I did. I Good did. job. Thank you. That's great. <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, like, a lot of us, there's something like 80% of people know they're really important, like 30% of people have done them. So good on you. But besides that sort of stuff, I think the bigger thing is in terms of dealing with your own sort of sense of self, your own legacy, uh, your own letting go of your ego, grappling with fear, all that juicy stuff, that is a daily exercise. I mean, for me, one of, them, one of the things is you just, once you get tuned into the naturalness, the normal, the mundaneness of death, it's all over the place, leaves falling from trees, bugs you step on on the ground accidentally. <clears throat> I mean, it's just, there's proof everywhere, hair falling out, whatever it is, exfoliated skin, dead skin cells, going to the bathroom is a, is a, is a loss. I mean, honestly, these are all, these are just happening all the time. So I think part of it is just opening your eyeballs up and seeing it mm -hmm. and noting it. And then this way you can start having a relationship to this bigger reality. And then you know what? It isn't so scary. It isn't this foreign boogeyman coming to get you. It's part of your normal daily boring life. It's just, just plain as day. So I think for me, that's a, that's a huge one. Lest you be surprised to find that you're dying someday. And that's a really hard surprise to find, to come upon when you're in a deathbed. Mm -hmm. So I think that is huge. Getting back to the, so I mean, we could go on and on, but I, also getting back to this idea of appreciation while you have it, mm -hmm. that's a great exercise. If you can, I'm really good at appreciating something I just lost, but can I appreciate while I have it? That can be a daily exercise. So those are some things that kind of get you in the arena. And probably accountability as well, right? So that yep. you, don't, you don't find yourself in that position with a bunch of, undealt with things. Yeah. yeah. It's the great accounting. It's coming at the end. There, there is a zero sumness to our bodily lives and you may, may be greatly deferred, but everything's going to come to account at the end. And one way or another, you're going to deal with it. Last question. Mm, darn. I know. I could talk to you for a lot longer, even though you're so distractingly good looking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How do you grapple with your own death? Um, in all the ways we were just talking. You know, one thing I spent a lot of time with this girl, and I spent as much time as I can out in the woods for all this proof of cycle of life, all this proof of loss amidst mm -hmm. beauty, all that is a sort of a daily exercise for me. Are you scared? I don't think so. But here's a really, really important piece of all this, is to hold out, let yourself be affected by your life. And things that may be coming your way, like some more losses, some more beauties, some more whatever, death included, you know, give yourself the respect to know that however you feel right now, you may feel differently a couple minutes from now. And that's not you being wishy-washy. That's you being agile. That's you being malleable. That's you being affectable. 
I think one of the most beautiful things we can do for each other is to be affected by each other um, and let ourselves change. So all that is to say, yeah, I don't really think I'm afraid of death for all, this, uh, for all this good work and all this vicarious lessons I get to learn from patients and families. But I have to say, when I'm actually standing at the edge of my horizon, I may freak the fuck out. <laughs> I, mean, I may really, I have no idea. And I, that's, I, that has to be okay. Mm-hmm. There's something we can only know so much and our language is only going to get us so far. And there's going to be all sorts of things I never thought about until I was actually in those shoes. So part of my preparation is just reminding myself of that. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to my conversation with BJ Miller. I hope you'll pick up a copy of his book, A Beginner's Guide to the End. And you can learn more about BJ at abgtte.com or by going to goop.com slash the podcast. To learn more about our wellness summit in Goop Health, head to goop.com slash in Goop Health. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.